You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, you're going to hear from Graham Clifford. This was supposed to be part of our episode on The Man Who Fell to Earth, but scheduling did not permit that. But luckily, Mr. Clifford's schedule allowed for him to answer a whole lot of questions, not just about The Man Who Fell to Earth, but a lot of other things that he edited, also that he directed. Enjoy. How did you manage to get into the film industry overall, and were you even in the film industry when you were in Australia? Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I started out studying medicine at Sydney University. When I was at the very beginning, just after my first year, when I was um, during the holidays, I I got a job. I was always interested in, you know, um, photography, and I was have always been taking still photographs all my life, even back then. And I got a job with a, uh, a documentary filmmaker, a rather prominent one in Australia at the time, who was making a documentary for, funnily enough, Channel 4 NBC here. And so I got a job working with him over the summer, and I got so fascinated with all of that that I took my next year off from medical school, and which they let me do, but they said that if you don't come back after a year, you lose your scholarship, because I was on a full scholarship. I... uh didn't go back. <laughs> I got so I got so caught up in the film milieu that I just kept going and and then worked in Australia for a while as a film editor, worked my way from an assistant editor to a, an editor and then left to go to England with some friends which was going to be a short trip and it ended up with my getting hired by the BBC in London. So I worked as an editor there for a few years and then headed off to Canada and um, worked for the CBC and also set up a pri- uh, an independent production company making commercials, which I mostly directed. And most of my work for the BBC was still editing. And then I got a job on Bob Altman's first movie in Canada. It was um, cold, that cold day in the park with Sandy Dennis and Michael Burns. He hired me as assistant editor because he was bringing his editor up from L.A., of course. And I said, well, I'd like to do another job because I've been editing for a while now. So could I be like second, 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 second assistant director or something like that? So he said, so we talked for a bit. And then he said, OK, well, you can be the second second AD, but I'm not paying you any more money. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, that's fine. <laughs> so I did my assistant editing job at night and got everything ready for the editor for the daytime. And then I was on set during shooting, which was mostly in daytime. So whenever I wasn't on set, I was in the cutting room doing my other job. I was essentially working around the clock, except when I was asleep. (laughs) So that brought me down to Los Angeles, because he asked me if I'd like to come down and help finish the movie, which I did. 
Then I worked on MASH, and then as his assistant on that one, and then Brewster McLeod, and then all. And I basically worked straight through for five years with him in varying capacities. You know, Bob was always one to keep a, a family of filmmakers around him, both actors and crew. And he often worked with the same actors over and over again, as you well know. He did the same with the crew members as well. So I worked with him for quite some time and a bunch of years. And then um, that's how I got involved in the film business. And so, you know, by that time, the, the medical school was a, a long way in my taillights, <laughs> or rearview mirror, rather. What kind of uh, movies were you editing when you were in uh, Australia and then um, uh, working in England? In Australia, I was mostly involved with commercials, and this was when they made them on telecine. There was no tape even in those days. It was all telecine and 16mm mostly for commercials. Sorry, the prints were 16mm, but they were mostly shot on 35 and edited on 35. And then when I got to England with the BBC, I started getting involved in documentaries and dramas. You know, the BBC did a lot of dramas in those days, both live television and filmed television. And so that led me to being more involved in um, in uh, scripted TV and no commercial involvement at all at that, at that time. And when I got to Canada, I was doing both. I was directing, editing, cutting my own negative, doing everything, doing documentaries. And then also with a cinematographer friend of mine, we had a, our own company. We were making commercials to make money so we could do the other stuff for the CBC and not make money. <laughs> and then when Bob Altman came to town to make his movie, that was my first opportunity to actually work on a, a movie. Well, what was that like for you to kind of shift your mindset into movie editing? Uh, it was pretty much the same. I mean, I you know, I mean, you just shift. I mean, filmmaking is filmmaking, and and you just adapt to whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a a, a movie. A, a cinema movie or a TV movie or a documentary or a series. You know, I've, I've directed series television in here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I basically started directing when my first movie, I did direct some of the Avengers episodes in England and some other TV in England, apart from the documentaries I was doing for the BBC. When I got to Canada... I uh, started to branch out a bit, and, and then when I met Bob, that was the first movie movie I did, although prior to that, I'd worked on some television movies. So, And uh, my first directing was, outside of television, that is, was Francis, which I did with Jessica Lange and Kim Stanley and uh, Sam Shepard, my dear old friend Sam. And that came about because I got really interested in her story found out that um, Jonathan Sanger, who at the time had just produced The Elephant Man for Mel Brooks's company, was also developing a, a movie about Francis Farmer. So I talked, well, I didn't have to do it much persuading, but I, <laughs> I got Jessica Lange involved with me to be to play Francis. And so I went to Jonathan and Mel with Jessica, uh, who was not exactly saleable in those days because she hadn't done anything that except King Kong and things like that, that seemed to recommend her for a movie like Francis, you know? So I came on board with Jessica and they came on board with the screenplay. So then that's how I managed to get involved and direct the movie. I imagine that your documentary training really probably helped out when you're doing stuff like working on MASH because there's such a, a documentary fly on the wall feel to that movie. 
my job on MASH because it, the previous one was connect, was it, we shot in Canada. So I, being away from the Hollywood unions, I was able to get more involved in different things. But on MASH, because the unions were really, really strong in those days, stronger than they are today, you couldn't work on anything unless you were in the union. Anything meaningful, I mean, certainly anything to do with the studio. And the independent world hadn't really hit its stride at that point yet. Bob said, here, why don't you uh, take the 16-millimeter camera and, and make a documentary about the making of the movie? Which, to my knowledge, hadn't really been done <laughs> in those days. Now it's very common, but in those days, I'm not saying this was the first time it was done, but it was certainly one of the first times. Certainly the first one I'd heard of anyway, but it might have happened in Europe. God knows anywhere else. But So I made a movie about the movie, and uh, that was shown on television before the movie itself was released. That was kind of, a, as I say, a first. And Bob got me doing that because he could not hire me in the editing room because of the union. I couldn't be assistant director because of the union. That was the next best thing. So I was working as his assistant as well as making my own movie. I had carte blanche to go and shoot whatever I wanted at any time. So that worked out well. And then we went back up to Canada to do McCabe and Mrs. Miller. At that point, I, I was uh, second assistant director, one of the second assistant directors. There was there were three of us. The casting director as well. <laughs> he said, why don't you cast the movie? And I said, well, I, I'd be happy to do that, but I've never done that before. He said, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. You can do it. <laughs> so I was the casting director, and then I became second second assistant on the set and then I got myself because we edited the movie back down here again in LA it was um I had to be careful about what I did in the cutting room and not tread on anybody's toes you know were you finally in the union when you did images or how did you manage to because I think you're credited as the full editor for that right yeah well we did that in England we shot it in Ireland which was fan fabulous, one of the best experiences, location experiences ever, except for when I did um, Don't Look Now in Venice. <laughs> that was probably the best location experience. But with Bob, of course, it was all editing and and or assistant directing and or being his assistant and stuff like that. And then, and then I sort of segued over to directing, mainly with Francis, I guess. I, I, although I had done some TV before that, but as far as... Um, MASH goes. I mean, Bob shot a lot of his movies in a documentary style, getting back to your original question. Editing in that style, to me, just came as second nature. So I was very open to his way of filming. And um, everyone used to think at the time that Bob gave his actors total leeway, improvise whatever they wanted, but that wasn't the case. Bob would allow improvisation during rehearsals, and he would then things would be ironed down pretty well. And he would still allow for a little bit of improvising and input from everybody, not just the actors, but from everyone on the set for that matter. But he kept it in pretty good. He kept a strong hold on things and he knew exactly what he wanted. So he knew how much documentary style input he was going to accept and how much he wasn't. However, having said all of that, it was a much freer way of shooting than most directors were utilizing at that time you know the most directors were very formal about what they did and everything was very much plotted in advance and rehearsed tell me a little bit more about images but just because that movie is just so fascinating just gorgeous and i love the way that that is put together that was the first movie that i actually cut 
for Bob and was credited as the editor. That was because I was already in the union in England, having worked there for years before I met Bob. So that was not a problem. The union wasn't an issue on that picture because we shot it in Ireland and did all the post-production in London. Bob wrote that script himself, mostly from a dream that he'd had. To me, it was poetry. And I tried to cut it like I would imagine a piece of poetry would be edited if it was visual. The pictures were so um, unbelievable. We had Vilma Sigmund shooting it. So, I mean, it was um, it was extraordinarily beautifully photographed. It was just a joy to work on because it was a small crew, a low budget for what Bob had been doing re- recently. And we were away from the away from the Hollywood hustle bustle. So it was a pleasure to work on it because it was small, contained, and there were only a few people giving opinions instead of everybody and his uncle. It was a lovely movie, and I was just able to do what I felt best. I mean, I've always kind of edited that way. I've edited how I thought the movie should be. And fortunately, most directors that I've worked with have not changed a whole lot, you know, even on Don't Look Now, which I did with Nick Rogan again in London. You know, a lot of that movie um, I was able to cut in Venice on location while we were shooting, which is what I used to like to do in those days. I don't, you know, nowadays the movie industry has changed so dramatically. You know, everything's now digital, of course, and so stuff happens at breakneck pace and in most editors as far as I can make out don't go on location it's all done afterwards because you can do it so much quicker but if I can branch off here to say something I don't think that quicker is necessarily better (laughs) what we are missing in the editing world nowadays is the ability to sit back and think about the film in depth and when I mean in depth I mean be in the editing room for two or three days without cutting a single frame and just think about it and pin scenes up and make editing points and hang them on pegs all literally all around the room like shutters on windows and get the whole movie the whole scene rather set in your mind and then sit down and cut it because what you didn't want to do in those days was recut <laughs> because it took a while and you had to recombine everything and put the dailies back together of the pieces that you'd hacked to shreds and the film would break and get torn if you didn't if you weren't expert with the moviola and um, the moviola was like a motorcycle you know it was like the motorcycle of film editing and it was I loved it it also prevented other people from coming in and looking at the movie if you didn't want them to see it because they could never work a moviola. <laughs> So, so unless the editor was in the room, it didn't get shown. <laughs> but you know, it was um, it was anyway. Getting back to images, it was just it was just wonderful because it was just me and Bob really. That was it. In, in post production, there was really no one else there. Everyone else was in L.A. Tell me about how you met Nick Rogue. It almost feels like Don't Look Now and Man Who Fell to Earth are edited. You said you edited images the way that a dream would be, and those. Films of rogues feel like dreams as well sometimes. I don't necessarily remember having the same feeling when I approached different movies. I, I didn't really approach a movie with a plan. I would let the film, as it was shot, dictate to me how it needed to be put together. Knowing what the story was, obviously, and knowing what the director wanted, since I would have lots of conversations with each director before I began just to sort of get a feeling of what they wanted more than specifics. 
I guess I'm an emotional sort of person, and so I would cut emo- emotionally rather than with physical intent. Or I didn't necessarily want to be fancy about what I did. I just wanted to make it work emotionally as best I could for what was going on at the time. Maybe that's why they feel a bit similar, because Nick taught me the grammar of filmmaking. Nick Nick was very much interested in the grammar of film, which is why in Don't Look Now, there's the, that scene between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland where you cut where I cut backwards and forwards between them getting dressed to go out for dinner and making love beforehand. Now, you know, Nick had plotted it that way and he wanted it cut that way. But apart from that being said, there was no further direction on how he wanted it cut, except that when I got the film, I could see what he had planned. And again, we talked about it while we were shooting it. I asked him to shoot certain things in certain ways to help me occasionally, but mostly I just put it together based upon what he gave me, and he gave me movement that linked one sequence to the other sequence before and after. That was one of those occasions where I strung up the entire sequence around the, the editing room, which was in a hotel in Venice, just sat down and put it together, and then we changed it a bit here and there, but not surprisingly very little because the first time through worked sometimes like with a the first draft of a screenplay you know i always carry the first draft of the screenplay around with me because i often feel very rarely do you go off and shoot the first draft it never seems to happen that way unfortunately but i often feel that the writer's intent and the writer's I get back to the word emotion again. The writer's feelings that were he had or she had when she wrote it are never there, are never there to the same extent in subsequent drafts, and particularly, of course, if other people are doing the subsequent drafts. I always had a, a fondness for the first draft of a screenplay, and I always, maybe, consequently, had the fondness for the first cut of a movie. And uh, not to say that you know, I didn't ultimately hopefully improve upon them as I went through but I'd like to I you know I'd like I'd like to get it as good as I could possibly get it on the first go through nowadays you don't you sort of slack off on that because it's digital and because you can cut it so quickly that you can make changes in a fraction of a second compared to what it used to take you don't go into it with the same conviction that you went in in the old days when it was a pain in the ass to recut so consequently, you recut and recut and recut and recut and recut, and you could literally some sequences you can have <clears throat> by the time you're through, you've probably recut it twenty times or more, which would never happen back then unless you were doing a David Lean movie and you had two years to edit, <laughs> and David was doing it. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it's um, editing is a different mindset now. When you are getting that feel for what the movie is going to be, is it just all verbal? You talking with, say, Nick Rogue, or is he giving you notes, or how are you uh, even ingesting that information? Just listening. I mean, if he's giving if he's giving me notes, he's no one was ever giving me notes except when you except when you're getting to the end of post production and you've got a, a note on this scene and a note on that scene, then you'd get specific notes to do things. You know, um, when it got down to the nitty gritty at the very end. But in the beginning, it's all verbal and it's all just conversation. And uh, yeah, if I if there were any notes given, it was just me making my own notes. 
mostly when I, if I took notes, I'd probably never look at them again. But the fact of the matter is, writing notes sometimes embeds them in your brain better than just listening. If you actually have to write it down, it tends to stay in my head longer. Particularly if I'm writing longhand, it stays in there less long if I'm typing. And then, as I said before, it's the it's the film that you get that really dictates what's happening and the script. Now, I might start looking at the script when we started cutting, but then pretty soon I knew the script so well that I didn't need to look at it anyway. And pretty soon you'd sort of not look at the script either. So so I'd be cutting the movie with just from just memory of conversations, good memory of the script. And uh, the script was always next to me, but whether I was looking at it or not was the issue. And then and just putting together what I saw and what I was feeling and what I knew the movie should needed to be and what the director, him or herself, wanted out of it and why they were making it. You know, I mean, things like that were of interest to me. Why they decided to do this in the first place, what was important to them about it. There may have been, there may be occasion where they were doing the movie for money. So, so, you know, and then there are other occasions, most notably in, in my career as an editor anyway, where, where the directors were, were, you know, doing it for the last thing on their mind was money, fortunately, because that's the better way, obviously. There's all sorts of reasons why people do things, and you have to get to the bottom of that in order to understand what's important about what you're about to do. When it came to The Man Who Fell to Earth, were you able to go to New Mexico with so many of the rest of the crew and, and work uh, from there? So I was there the whole time. I was there usually several weeks before the crew got there. Um, looking at, I'd go out with um, Nick on location, and um, and again, you see, that's a great time to talk uh, because you're in a bus, getting a minivan, getting out there, and then and you get to know your director so much better, and you get to know their sense of humor and everything. Because you you listen while they're talking to other people on the bus, you know, the cinematographer, you get to hear all the director cinematographer conversations. So that's immensely helpful. So by the time you actually start shooting, you feel like you know the director well. And well, by that time, I knew Nick well, of course, because we'd already done a movie together prior to that. So I didn't need to worry about that part of it. But, you know, you get to know, you know who you're working for and who you're cutting for and what their priorities are and what their mindset is, you know, because that obviously can change from movie to movie too. I mean, Bob had different mindsets for the f- five years I worked with him, jumping from one movie to the other. They were always, he always had different ideas in his head about what he was doing and why he was doing it and why it was nothing like the what he'd done before. Now, it might not come out that way, but as far as Bob was concerned, it was always a different project with a different approach. Yeah, that was one thing I always enjoyed about his work was just how different everything was. Even just the few movies that you mentioned working on, you really can't get much more different than MASH and Brewster McCloud and, and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller in A Cold Day in the Park. I mean, and images, uh, just such a wide variety of, of artistic projects. It's nuts. Yeah, well, that's what I loved about working with Bob. You know, it was never the same old, same old, ever. It was always different and always rewarding creatively, which is what I find difficult about retiring. <laughs> <laughs> retiring isn't all, all it's cut out to be because you lose, you know, you lose that stimulation. You lose what you lose. What you lose, of course, with being in a movie is being with everybody and being part of that family while you're making that particular movie. And there's nothing that can replace that. I mean, you can paint and you can 
play if you're a musician and you can do other creative stuff, but it's not the same as making movies. So it's unfortunately irreplaceable. Well, tell me what was your experience like working on uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth? That was a different experience because it was very difficult to put it together and financially and get the money because it was, I mean, it was based on a, on a book, of course, but the book itself wasn't your typical plot-driven book. Of course, Nick and his sensibility would throw the plot totally out the window anyway if he had his choice, and so would Bob to a certain extent. So I ended up getting most of my mentorship from two directors who didn't have a whole lot to say about plot. <laughs> but um, So Nick took the man and filled the earth off into another realm of um, where you really had to concentrate on the movie in order to stay involved and and know what was going on i i believe so and i tried to sort of help as much as i could with that but then again i want you know i got involved with i figured that it, the movie was not about plot it was more about what was happening to this man psychologically and so the plot was happening in the background as far as i was concerned and it, nick didn't shoot it in any other way anyway. So even if somebody had come along and fired me and wanted to recut it, they wouldn't be able to string it together in a in a plot-driven format because it, it basically was not shot that way. You know, I just loved the movie and I thought, well, you know, people are either going to get this or they're not. So that's that, you know, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. But that's what I thought filmmaking was all about or that's what Bob and Nick the two greatest influences on my um, filmmaking life felt about movies. They were less invested in cre creating something that they thought they were doing for financial gain and meanings, how much money the movie was going to make. I still get upset when I listen to broadcasts of how much money movies made over the past week. And therefore, uh, the by inference, the most successful movies are the ones who made the most money, which, of course, isn't necessarily the case at all. But we still, unfortunately, place an inordinate amount of importance on how much money things make, not just films, but everything else. But it always disturbed me about movies and still does. But I didn't know. I like, I, you know, I cut the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, too. And I did that because I um, I um, had seen the the, the play the theater, the theater production in London and thought it was just fantastic. So I went out after that movie. A lot of the, couple of the movies that I did, I went after. I went after that one. I, I met the director who fortunately also happened to be Australian and we hit it off. And so I got to do that. And I, I really wanted to do that movie. So, you know, again, it was small budget in those days and I did my own music and sound effects editing as well. So I cut the music and then cut the picture to the music. In a lot of, it. of course, when you're doing a musical, you have to do that, but not necessarily with the with the score segment of the music. Not the Rocky Horror Picture Show had much of that, but <clears throat> it was an interesting exercise for me early in my career to have to do all of that, not just the picture editing. And to do Don't Look Now, I actually got talking to Julie Christie when we were doing McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And she told me she was off to London to do a movie with Nick Rogue. And I said, oh, yeah, what? Because I was had one of my favorite films of all time is Walkabout. And so the minute Nick Rogue's name came up, 
uh, my antenna went up and she said, why don't you come to London and cut it with us? I mean, you, you know, you, you and Nick would get along well. <laughs> so I took her at her word and I went and I flew myself to London and she organized a meeting with Nick and um, that's how that happened. But if I hadn't gone to London on my own dime and um, sorted out, I certainly would never have had a chance of editing it. Nick didn't even know who I was. So um, that wouldn't have happened. So you've got to, you know, in life, like with anything, you've got to go out and get stuff. If you want to do stuff, you've got to make it happen or try to. You can't just sit back and wait for it to happen because it's not going to. Both Rocky Horror and Man Who Fell to Earth had different cuts when they were released theatrically. I remember there being a, a version of... Rocky Horror without uh, the song Superheroes in it, and then um, that, but yeah. I think it came out at one point. That, like, I, I would go yeah. to one theater and see one version. I'd go to another theater and see another version. Yeah, these things happen. You know, they usually happen when I'm off doing another movie. By the time this this stuff goes on, I was back in Los Angeles, of course, when that was going on with Rocky Horror, and it was. It's usually. Not immediately after the movie's finished. It's usually a little bit of time later that this stuff starts to go on. I never did see the version without that um, hero song in it. I can't imagine why anybody would want to take it out. But that's, you know... <laughs> and the same thing, you're right, the same thing did happen with The Man Who Fell to Earth, and uh, maybe Susan Compo told you. You know, they, um, the, the, I can't remember his name now, but the producer who... In eventually inherited the movie, decided that he could make a lot more money and make it more commercial by shortening it by about 20 minutes. Again, I never saw that version because of either one of them, because partly, mostly because I wasn't interested in seeing it. But apparently, I was not involved in any way in any of this, but apparently it totally bombed and everybody, the people who had liked the movie to begin with were complaining like crazy and and so they released, they did release it, I believe, in a sort of a limited way, I think. It didn't do any good. But then, see, he was trying to make the movie that Nick never set out to make. Nick was making what he would describe as a creative movie, and the producer was making what he would describe as a money-making movie. You can't do that with a Nick Rogue film. It's not going to happen. So it, it, it either works like Don't Look Now did and became a, sort of a cult phenomenon, or it doesn't, you know, and it's the same with Bob. You know, that's why you said earlier, you know, Bob was all over the map when he was making movies. Some movies like MASH and other ones further down the line, the one that was like upstairs, downstairs, what was that called? Um, Gosford Park and lots of them in between were huge successes and others came and went without a lot of people even knowing. And you don't know what's going to be successful and what isn't if you're making a movie based upon something that you're interested in and that you think you can do well and that it has all sorts of elements that you find incredibly attractive and that you can identify with. You know, you don't know if it's going to be successful like um, Joker, that movie that, that they tried to suppress and not release. That's, you know, Joaquin Phoenix will undoubtedly get nominated for Best Actor. Things happen, you know. I mean, lightning in a bottle just happens when you least expect it, and so you have to get you have to carry on making the movies you want to make and hope that they're commercially successful. And even the man who fell to earth in its original form, which is the only one I've ever seen, has still a huge following. I mean, I mention that movie to people I've never met, and 
very rarely do I mention it to someone who doesn't who doesn't know of it, which I find surprising. I'm not surprised about Don't Look Now because that movie of Nick's was much more accessible and you know was sort of out there. So I'm not surprised when most people know about that, particularly since I think it was included in some. Um, was it the British Film Institute or somebody somebody's list of the ten best movies ever made? <laughs> you know, it, it's got an elevated status there. But um, but I mean, even the Man Who Fell to Earth it, it's, it's it's still being shown and it still crops up all over the place and people are still interested in it. You know, so and that you can't say that about most movies. Unfortunately, most movies, you know, a lot of movies are made every year and the vast majority of them come and go without anybody ever hearing about them. Just to make a movie that's still around is a, is a triumph or an achievement. I'm sure that as an editor, one of the things that you have to worry about is not just pacing, but also the idea of how much time is passing. And that's one of the things I like the most about The Man Who Fell to Earth is that lack of time, that we never know how much time is going on from one scene or one moment to the next. No, and of course, uh, Mike, that was deliberate too, obviously, and that's why... Probably one of the reasons why the producer, the subsequent producer came along and tried to make it into a, a regular straightforward story. There's no, when a movie is shot deliberately with no time zone or no indication of time passing, you can't insert that in there. It's just not there. And so, and so telling it in a linear way is not, is not going to work. You don't even, <laughs> you don't even need to experiment with it to know it's not going to work. In my opinion, I mean, as an editor, you take one look at it and you say, well, you're not going to, unless you have footage that you're hiding from me that I've never seen, you're not going to be able to do that. It was important to Nick that you didn't have any idea of time passage, passing because it would become much too mechanical. You'd have a ticking clock going on if you tried to do that, you know, and that, that's not what it was about. It was, you didn't know whether he was there for one year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. You know, he never aged anyway. And everybody else did, so that gave you some indication of how much time had passed just by looking at the other actors. And that's all you needed. And if you if you need more than that, then then you're watching the wrong movie. You talked a little bit about Francis. I'm I'm actually really curious about the movie you made called Burke and Willis, and I was curious how it was after all this time to be making a movie again in Australia. It's Burke and Wills, by the way. Many, you're not the first one. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> um, um, well, I mean, uh, Francis was something that I personally had a lot invested in. It was probably the movie that I've worked on of anything I've done, whether it's been editing or directing, whatever, that I really felt personally involved with to the extent that I knew who Francis Farmer was, even though I never met her and she was dead by the time getting interested in making them a movie about her. Um, there was a lot about her life and a lot about the choices she made and the way she conducted her life that I resonated with me immediately. I mean, it was like it was like, I, it was almost like it was me there making those decisions. I could rationalize every single one of them and feel every single one of them. It was in, incredibly personal. And, and that's why I had to do it. Burke and Wills was, again, very personal because one of my favorite topics in high school was history, ancient history in particular, but Australian history as well. And Burke and Wills features prominently in every Australian 
child's education. And their story is uh, well known uh, by the time you get out of high school. Having lived for a while in this country, when I got the opportunity to make it, and I'd had it in the back of my mind to sort of try and make that movie ever since I was in high school, even though in the early going, I never thought I would get a chance to. It was like a Greek chorus to me, making that picture. It was something I grew up with. It was something in my DNA, being Australian. And it was an incredibly heart-rending, tragic story to me about the way it panned out and the way that it um, unspooled itself, I suppose, when it need not have been that way. Burke was a terribly Victorian British person, even though he was Irish. <laughs> but he would not, could not accept any help from the Aboriginal people whatsoever because he thought to the, his dying moment, he thought they were savages. So he led Wills, who was again, a, 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 who was British and a typically British person in as much as he followed his leader and obeyed his leader to the bitter end, even though he knew it was ridiculous and stupid and tragic and would lead to tragedy. Being stiff upper lip British, he did what was required of him and what British people in those days, you know, they had a lot of moral gumption about them, you know, which we've all lost now, of course, but but they did, for good or bad, what they what they had signed up to do. And the only survivor was King, the youngest member of the team, who outlasted everybody else. And fortunately, the Aboriginals found him before he died, looked after him until another expedition search party came and found him, you know. And then he was brought back to Melbourne and made that speech of his, most of which is in the movie. I mean, he died when he was in his early 30s. I mean, that what had happened to him physically, being on the verge of starvation and weighing something like 80 pounds or something. I mean, he, um, you know, he never, he never physically recovered. I mean, it, it was just an incredible story to me, you know, and it was like the, to me, it was like <clears throat> the Australian Lewis and Clark, except the Lewis and Clark story, way less dramatic and much more successful. But it was still two guys going out there on their own, essentially, with a bunch of other people, but they were the leaders. They, other guys did whatever they were told to do. And I mean, in Australia's case, the reason there are camels now in Australia is because they brought them from Turkey. Burke thought that if he bought a bunch of camels with him, he'd get across the desert better than with horses, which, of course, he was right. But another thing he did was he took an entire boat with him on the back of the camels. It was a disassembled boat, obviously, but it was a big one. And he slugged the camels through the desert with this boat because in, the, in, in 1860, when all this happened, People still believe that in the middle of Australia, there was an inland sea. And of course there was, because if you go into the middle of Australia to this day, around Ayers Rock or anywhere, or Uluru as it's now called, you can bend down and pick up a seashell anywhere. So the, the whole of Australia in the middle was in fact an inland sea. So it was not fantasy. It just had dried up <laughs> long before Burke and Wills ever got there. They were going into the unknown. You know, it was like us going to the moon. And up to a large extent, I think Lewis and Clark must have felt the same way. And I just thought it was an incredible story. I just, I just thought it was the best as a kid. I thought it was the best and the most romantic story I had ever read.
And so when I got the chance to make it, I had to do it. And of course, it was one of those movies like The Man Who Fell to Earth. You know, it was not going to appeal to a wide audience, but I just had to make it. You know, I just thought, well, if I do it right, it might be appealing to a wide audience. I just don't know. You know, I mean, as it turned out, it wasn't, but it still made a lot of people's 10 best lists, even in this country. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. And I mean, I love Jack Thompson. So seeing him on screen is always such a pleasure. Oh, he's fabulous. Yeah. And so, and so is Nigel Havers, by the way, who played Wills. I mean, the two of them together was, uh, and you know, I mean, I'd, I'm not speaking out of school here when I tell you that Jack Burke and Wills is, was Jack's favorite film of everything he's ever done, mainly because of the, the reason that I like it. It's just it's just in our DNA somewhere, you know? I mean, that story just resonates with he and I. He and me, I suppose. I love the movie. And the, the other thing I've got to do is get a... I mean, the, the negative has been lost. And we think that the National Geographic Society has it somewhere, and I've got to track that down. Yeah, so um, that's another that's another reason I've got to get onto that story and get... You know, because I don't have... I, I, I have one one print, and that's about, and that's it. One decent print. I have several prints, but the others are not so good. What was it like directing Gleaming the Cube? It seemed like such a departure for you. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it was a departure, but it, but again, it felt interesting at the time. And what interested me about it, even though maybe it's not a strong part of the movie as it came out, was the relationship between Christian Slater and his brother, who was Vietnamese. And adopted, obviously, but, but, you know, I mean, the fact that, um, that the two of them stood up for each other and looked out for one another to the best extent they could was, um, appealed to me a lot in the, in the early going. And then and I loved skateboarding. So, and I, I, uh, and so the whole idea of doing a skateboarding movie was v- very appealing. And, um, it was like making a surf movie. You know, I've never made a surf movie, but I always wanted to, the same as I've always wanted to make a Western. <laughs> so the opportunity of doing something that involves skateboarding in a real context, albeit exaggerated in many instances, but, and involving that culture and that way of thinking, which I try to re- keep intact, appealed to me. So, um, and I still like it. And you know what? I mean, <laughs> The movies I've made, I get I get just as much praise for that as I do for anything I've ever done. But, you know, particularly from people who are the same age as my son, who grew up when I was making that movie, and that movie to them was very important as a kid, you know. And so when I'm talking to um, people younger than myself, but still well into their 30s and 40s, and, I, and they learn I did Gleaminess Cuba, they say, what?! I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me that that, that, that had meant so much to so many people and I'd been unaware of it at the time. You probably have answered this question a thousand times. I have to ask about the title because I don't remember if they ever say in the movie where it came from. Yeah, they do. Uh, gleaming, gleaming the Cube. It was, it was made up by the author of the screenplay m- made it up, but then he got it from a skateboarder who said it once to him whilst he was writing. And, you know, Gleaming the Cube was like reaching the the ultimate and doing the impossible, basically, you know. 
and um, and uh, in skateboarding terms. That's why he used it as the title, and it stuck. You know, there, there were some discussions about changing the title and making it something that was a little more accessible, because Gleaming the Cube, even to a lot of skateboarders, doesn't mean anything. It stuck. So it started that way, and it ended up that way, and the title stuck, so that's what it was. I liked it because nobody knew what it meant. <laughs> and, it, and it sounded good. <laughs> First time I ever heard the title, I I would never have even picked that it was a skateboarding movie. Yeah, and I didn't mind that either. You know, that I didn't want I didn't want it to to be on the surface a skateboarding movie because I thought in the long run that might not help it. You know, it didn't skateboarding at that time didn't have following that surfing did, so it didn't have as big a potential audience. So um, I thought that the fact that it didn't mention or indicate skateboarding was probably a good thing. I have to ask you too. How was your experience working on Twin Peaks? Oh, that was great. That was like working with an old friend. You know, I'd known David for ages. Um, I mean, he mostly, like Bob, surrounded himself with people he knew or had worked with before or had, you know, some relationship with. And so, you know, whilst you were admittedly doing a series, it wasn't like normal TV series that that I had been doing on and off during those years. You know, it was. First of all, it was like making a little mini movie that was in the context of the overall story and the other episodes that bookended you. But since each director went in with his own sensibility and David sort of encouraged that, you had a lot more freedom, creative freedom, than you did on any other series I ever worked on. You were working with somebody who hired you to do that episode and you know, you've had some conversations about it and you knew what they were doing and you'd, if you'd done your homework, you'd seen every episode that led up to it. So you knew <clears throat> where you were going and you knew what the, st- what the style of the show was. So you obviously, everybody tried to stay within that style, which came through in the screenplays anyway. But, um, you, you didn't have anybody looking over your shoulder telling you what to do or how to do it which is un- un- unusual for an episodic series because that's that's basically all you get is strings of notes every day. Some of them good, some of them not so good. <laughs> that was one thing about that show is I couldn't necessarily feel a fingerprint on a lot of the episodes because I did conform to the overall feel of the entire show, and it was kind of nice that way. Yeah, well, I think each director came up with his own way of interpreting what David wanted to do, and the and the, the sort of the whimsiness of the whole thing. I, you know, you, you I always felt that, that we were floating through space in a kind of a way. The, the story was coming out as we went along, but it was all great extent. A lot of people's feet never hit the ground, you know. After you became more of a director, were you still editing your own stuff, or did you give that up completely? Initially, I didn't. But but then later I did. You know, working with Bob, particularly, you learn uh, how to um, take advantage of the people around you and take advantage of their creativity and their abilities and their sensibilities and weave it into what you're doing. Now, as an editor, I always appreciated a director letting me do what I wanted to do first before he even set foot in the cutting room. And then working with me and listening to me all the way through without dict- I never had a director ever dictate to me how he wanted anything cut. Fortunately, that never happened to me. 
I very quickly found a couple of editors whose sensibilities were close to mine. One of them, one of them had been my assistant for a num- on a number of projects, and the other one I had worked with as a, uh, alongside as an editor. But they both understood me, and they both knew how I worked and had known me for years, so they knew who I was and what I believed in, you know, outside of just regular movies. It was easy for me to, surprisingly easy for me to give that up. And uh, particularly in the later years when it became digital, and, and because I had given it up, I never kept up with the digital transitions. I was still editing when it went, when it went all the way through the, the videotape era. But once it sort of got to digital, I was already handing over my movie to someone else to cut. And so I was happy not to have to have to go through all that stuff and let someone else do it. It's beneficial. You know, I would recommend it to everybody because you get somebody comes in and cuts your movie and you look at it from someone else's perspective and you immediately get to see what works and what doesn't work, even if you thought it was all terrific in dailies. And typically what happens is you see your movie and you think, oh, shit, what have I done? No one's ever going to want to see this picture. And I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> That's exactly how you feel. And and I remember other directors coming in, and and when I was an editor, we'd finish running in the first time through, and they'd sit there in the ed- in the in the screening room because we would screen it, and they'd look devastated. <laughs> and I think, shit, what have I done? But then when you be- when you become a director yourself, you understand exactly what the what the feeling is. It's not anything like you thought it was going to be. And then you think, well, then you come down to earth and you realize that, of course, it is like what you thought it was going to be. And in fact, it's not that far removed from what you had in your mind all along. It's just that seeing it for the first time is 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 a is an incredible shock, especially if you haven't been in the cutting room during the, the editing of the first edition, so to speak. Then you sit down and you calm down and you get to go through it again. And the second time you look at it, you think, oh, it's not bad. Oh. And then the third time you look at it, you think, oh, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> so, so, then, so then you work from there, you know. But I, I just love to have other people's input, you know. And Bob said something to me, which I have always used as a director ever since. He, he In his preliminary production meeting, he would always say to the crew, He'd say, listen, I'm always open to ideas. Any one of you, any one of you, you, it doesn't have to be department heads, can come to me at any time and give me an idea if you if you see or think of something that you think might be worthwhile. And he said, if I'm busy, I'm not always going to be able to answer you or necessarily explain to you why I, why I don't want to do it if, in fact, I don't take you up on your idea, but I will always respect the idea and encourage you to give it to me. I was really impressed when I heard that for the first time. I've always made that part of my little speech as well. And you know, you you know, I, su- I suggested something on the set of um, Cold Day in the Park, the first movie I did with Bob. I suggested something on the set, which he which he did. And I was I was so I was so chuffed, and I felt so important. <laughs> That it it made a big difference to me. I was so, I mean, he never mentioned anything about it after, before or since, you know, it's just he did it. And then it was just part of the movie. And and it was, um, but, you know, he he never, he never said, gee, Grant, that was a great idea and blah, blah, blah. But nothing was ever said. But uh, but obviously he he liked it enough to act upon it. And so that was extremely important to me.
And then another thing that with Bob, whom I loved, it was my best man at my wedding, by the way, as well. But when he was not well, and I had just come back, and I and the last film I'd made was, in fact, Burke and Wills. He saw it on the Z Channel. You remember the Z Channel? So in, have you ever lived in California? I have not, but I've I've seen the documentary about the Z Channel. Yeah, well, the Z Channel ran Burke and Wills. It was shot in anamorphic, so it was massive widescreen, like a David, like David Lean's movies always were. He saw it on the Z Channel. I got this phone call, and I had, and I sort of lost touch with Bob over the years for no particular reason, just as life goes on, you know. Well, Bob's voice was on the end of the phone, and he said, um, I, "Well, I won't tell you the whole conversation, but the gist of it was, I was watching TV, and this movie came on, and Catherine, that's his wife." Was we were having people come around to go out and have dinner in a restaurant, and I let them go because I wanted to watch the end of the movie. And then I saw that it was that you directed it. I, he said, "I want to tell you, Graham, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen." Well, you know how that made me feel. Here's someone who was just as instrumental and as important in my life almost as my own father, and um, he's telling me this, you know. So that was. Um, well, I will say there's another little anecdote I'll give you. John Houston, who raised his children in Robert O'Hara Burke's house in Ireland. He bought Burke's house. And when I visited the house as part of my research, he already owned it. Of course, he wasn't there at the time. But um, he phoned me up out of the blue, and I didn't know him at all. I'd known him briefly because I met him in Cannes with Bob Altman once. Um, he came to dinner with us and was a, I remember just him being one of the best raconteurs I'd ever heard. But other than that, he would never have remembered me. But, um, he called me up out of the blue and said, I've heard that you've made a movie about Burke and Wills. And I said, yes. And he said, I always wanted to make that movie. And I said, yeah, well, I, I said, I, I, I have been aware of that. So he said, would you let me see it? And I said, would I let you see it? You can, you can see it whatever you want. So I got, I was at Fox at the time. So I got to the big Fox, um, screening room and he came with his nurse and an oxygen bottle and sat down in the screening in that big theater all by himself and watched the movie from beginning to end and came out of it with tears in his eyes. You know, well, I mean, that those two episodes in my life were just uh, unbelievably important to me as a filmmaker. There's nothing anybody can say that can duplicate something like that, you know. And and so when that happens in your life, it's better than any award or anything that any piece of hardware that someone can give you, you know. So what have you been doing since you retired? I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on. I won't go into them because the likelihood of them getting made is probably not great, but um, Jonathan Sanger and I are working on something together. You, you never know. Something could work out still, and it keeps me feeling the anticipation of something actually happening is worth the effort anyway, even if it never gets made, because when I'm working on a screenplay or I'm <clears throat> thinking about pre-production, I'm I never think that the movie's never going to get made. I always feel that obviously it will get made. So it's very, it's very exhilarating to start seeing the movie. So whether it gets made or not really isn't that important to me anymore. Well, Mr. Clifford, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific. Well, just hearing you say that is good. I hope it has been. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of talking, but I don't know how much of it is worth anything. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.